Hey, Gabe. Hey, what's up, Tim? I have a New Year's resolution here at the start of 2020 to finally watch movies other than ones with nuclear weapons in them. I even bought myself one of those unlimited movie pass things. But Tim, don't you have a baby coming in March? Wait, you're right. That's not fair. That's not fair at all. There was time now. Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear nonproliferation for a living. I'm joined today on the podcast by my co-host, Gabe. Gabe, welcome back. Hey, how's it going, Tim? Pretty good. What's your qualifications to be on this podcast? You're, are you a new expert guy or just a... Well, I met you some years ago and you made me watch some movies and uh, you were starting to talk to me about nuclear weapons. So that's that's the qualification. And that didn't turn you away. That's terrific. But fortunately, we're also joined in the, the podcast studio slash my living room by another one of our close friends, Elliot. Elliot, uh, welcome back to the, the podcast. Thank you, Tim. Good to be here. I think last time when I was here, we were it was episode 27 doing the Atomic Train with mm-hmm. Rob Lowe, two-part, four-hour miniseries that was pretty excruciating to get through. So thank you for giving us two shorter things to watch that are much <laughs> more entertaining and uh, I think interesting to talk about. Well, when that was over, I did promise you to watch some good nuclear content at some point. Uh, it only took one full year, but welcome back in the podcast zone. Thank uh, you. Happy to be here. Speaking of time and, and also zones, we're going to talk about two episodes of the Twilight Zone that are about time and nuclear weapons. We'll first talk about Time Enough at Last, which is season one, episode eight, that was originally aired on November 20th, 1959. And then we'll also talk about no Time Like the Past, Season 4, Episode 10, from uh, originally airing on March 7th, 1963. I always forget how old the Twilight Zone original series is. Were you guys fans of the Twilight Zone before being asked to watch these episodes for the podcast episode? I was a huge fan. I think I got into it one year because it was a New Year's Day you know, sci-fi channel marathon. And so mm-hmm. we pretty much watched, this was in my 20s when you had time to do this and pretty much watched <laughs> like basically probably every episode of Twilight Zone, you know, through. That's pretty impressive that you finished a marathon. I'm, yeah, I'm <laughs> yeah, I finished a marathon, you know, no big deal. Yeah. I don't like to brag about it okay. usually. Nice. Gabe, what about you? Yeah, no, I've always liked the idea of the Twilight Zone um, just being, you know, somewhat of a fan of science fiction and things like that and just old stuff in general i just never had a chance to sit down and actually watch it so i'm glad this was this was the first time i got to see it so i have a good opportunity I'm glad we can be the excuse for that we also covered uh, a previous twilight zone episode on uh, episode 14 of our podcast twilight zone episode was called the shelter it's uh it's a great one it's one of the, the episodes of the joel era of uh the podcast both of you guys went to school with joel so that's a kind of a fun connection here. Um, the, he was original uh, co-host of this podcast. But that episode involves a guy during the Cold War builds himself a fallout shelter. During his birthday party, all of his neighbors make fun of the fact that he's a, uh, a wacko, paranoid guy who builds a fallout shelter. Then the radio says there's an incoming bomber strike. And he goes in his fallout shelter and the neighbors try to break in. Uh, and there's a big fun twist at the end. It's a great episode. So for this one we'll talk about today, I think there's two main underlying questions that 
that I want to cover. One, what was the contemporary moment in history like when these episodes were released, you know, in terms of the, the Cold War nuclear tensions? And also, what do these episodes tell us about how to manage the danger of nuclear war? And of course, as relatedly is, uh, how does the Twilight Zone treat these topics? Because Rod Sterling, who was the, the, the showrunner, the, who wrote a lot of these episodes, you know, this was something that was always really close on his mind because, you know, obviously the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Cold War, all of these things were there for everybody. But for him in particular, he wanted to cover social issues and that included nuclear weapons. So we'll summarize each episode. We'll talk about the nuke themes present in each one and then wrap up with some general discussions, some ratings, and recommendations as per usual. So, uh, Gabe, which one are we going to start out with first? Uh, let's start with uh, Time Enough at Last. How about that? That was the first one serially that was produced from Season 1, Episode 8, uh, November 20th, 1959. Yeah, so this was one of the most popular episodes of The Twilight Zone. People, if they've heard about The Twilight Zone, they probably have heard about this episode. stars uh, Burgess Meredith, who people may know as Mickey, the trainer in the Rocky Balboa movies. Uh, but he was also uh, the Penguin in those fun 1960s Adam West era Batman TV show. This was adapted from a short story written by Lynn Venable uh, in 1953 in a science fiction magazine called If Colon Worlds of Science Fiction. Uh, it's pretty short. I'll link to it in the um, the podcast show notes because it's a what is that? The Gutenberg Project. It's like a website that has a bunch of old and out of copyright print of stuff, and you can read it. And it's it's. It's pretty great. You can read the whole thing in like about five minutes or something. Elliot, why don't you uh, do what normally starts a Twilight Zone episode? There's like a usually some sort of cold open and then Rod Sterling pops in out of nowhere and gives us an opening narration. You do not have to do a Rod Sterling impression, <coughs> but if you do, you get, you get bonus points. Okay. We'll, we'll do a 50-50. Witness one Mr. Henry Bemis, a charter member in the Fraternity of Dreamers, a bookish little man whose passion is the printed page but who is conspired against by a bank president and a wife and a world full of tongue cluckers and the unrelenting hands of a clock. But in just a moment, Mr. Bemis will enter a world without bank presidents or wives or clocks or anything else. He'll have a world all to himself without anyone. That's the probably the, the thing that scared people the most in, in 1959 was a world without bank presidents and wives? That's insane. I feel one of those is maybe more important than the other. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we should cover that. Just to, uh, if anybody's listening, if my wife's listening, uh, put that disclosure right out front. Perfect. Uh, so it's pretty clear from the, even just this and this, this very start of the episode. Uh, Henry, he's an inefficient bank teller with eyes that are so bad that he needs these thick Coke bottle lens glasses really to see anything in front of his face. Do you think that's uh, foreshadowing at all? It's uh, it's you know, it's something to look out it's for possible? in the future. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, he just wants to read books, right? He doesn't want to be bothered by customers, bosses, or wives, which, to be honest, as a someone who works in an office environment, you know, it's not an un unreasonable request that the bank president asks his employees to not read fiction while trying to deal with the customers and count the money, but, you know, the boss is pretty mean about it when he, when, when he calls them out. Right. I see you constantly going downstairs into the vault during your lunch hour. I demand him, Mr. Bemis. You will henceforth devote your time to your job and forget reading... Or you'll find yourself outdoors on a park bench reading from morning till night for want of having a job. Good day, Bemis. No, I know people like this who are just, you know, they, they're dreamers. They, they can't get down to the job, but uh, they're smart people and they just love to read. So, uh, you know, he's, he's there reading at work and uh, when he goes home, he wants to live in the world of Fahrenheit 451. Um, <laughs> in the sense that every time he has a book, he has to like hide it yeah. from his wife who wants to burn it. Exactly. Right. Which I kind of struggled with 
the wife's motivations and like why does she care so much and mm -hmm. you know they had they had one part where they were kind of explaining it like i want you to be a conversationalist and whatever and then there was another moment where it was basically like i'm just spiteful because i don't like you as my husband and you like this so i just basically don't want you to have this thing and this is before no fault divorce so right he's stuck <laughs> they're stuck yeah i guess they're stuck I was thinking about it. I was like, okay, what's the modern equivalent? I feel like this is kind of like people who have a smartphone addiction mm. and just never put their phone down at family dinner, you know? Oh, I, I definitely want to see this episode remade with someone who just won't get off their phone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love it. Uh, fortunately, when he's at work, he can take his lunch break in the bank vault, you know, because he's got the code and he's able to go into the bank vault and close the door and read all the, the fiction and newspapers and other things he wants to, to read in, in, in very peace and quiet. So he opens up a newspaper, right? He's sitting there, he's eating a sandwich, and uh, there's a big headline that pops up. H-bomb, capable of total destruction. It says, here's the text on here. It says, uh, noted atomic scientist reveals possibility of H-bomb. One of the world's leading nuclear physicists today stressed the danger to mankind in a race in the hydrogen bomb as total and catastrophic. In a speech given at a symposium on nuclear weapons before 35 top scientists of the United States and Great Britain. And if you were reading the uh, short story that we'd mentioned earlier that this is based off of, I think there's an article in a magazine called The New Weapons and What They'll Do to You. Uh, it's it's quite a thing. Does it seem like, though, that H-bombs have not been invented yet? Or is it like, hey, they're here. What do you need to do about it? How do you think a viewer from that from 1959, when they saw this flash on the screen, do you think it would click to them and they'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, H-bombs are dangerous? Or would they be like, oh, I've only heard a little bit about this? Mm -hmm. Would they be aware of what this is? I think they would, because this really is that the timing of it is, is pretty close to when these things first came out. So November 1952, what test that was codenamed Ivy Mike, uh, it was the Ivy series, and Mike was the shot of that series, was the, the first of a thermonuclear device. Uh, and the short story itself came out in 1953. So you can imagine pretty closely written right after that. These weapons were, were pretty new, yeah, I would say. And, and people you know, really did not know what they could do to you because the only time that they were used was you know, to destroy two relatively small Japanese cities. And when they saw pictures coming home from you know, the destruction, yeah, it was bad, but you know, the cities weren't completely wiped out. You know, some people survived. There were some buildings, you know, there's this famous uh, domed building that was right at the epicenter of where the explosion took place. And this bomb was exploded, you know, in the air. It wasn't like on the ground. It was there and it survived. So people thought, oh, atomic bombs are going to be bad, but they're not going to destroy everything. But H-bombs, as we'll talk about in a second here, are categorically different in terms of both destruction and radiation damage. And then in 1955, the Russians did their first test. The RDS-37 was their first test, and that one had a nominal yield of up to three megatons, but it was scaled down to one megaton for the test. And, and so how would you compare that? Like, how many times more powerful is that than, let's say, like the Hiroshima sure. uh, Nagasaki? A megaton is a million tons. The bombs that were dropped were between 13 to 21 kilotons a thousand tons so we're talking about the difference between say thirteen thousand tons and you know one million that's a wow. lot of tons it's the difference between <laughs> a, a a bomb that can destroy a city center versus one that can level like manhattan yeah right essentially <clears throat> but leave the sporting good cabinets in place <laughs> yeah yes exactly yeah well We'll get to that. Okay. Uh, so hydrogen bombs, what they are, right? They uh, they're different than regular atomic bombs. The first ones that we were, that were created, because what they do is they actually use the intense heat and thermal radiation from the first stage 
of a fission bomb. When fission bomb is when you split atoms apart. So usually it's uranium or is uranium or plutonium. These are the ones that were used against Japan. Those are, you know, uranium and plutonium are some of the heaviest and least stable elements. So if you hit them with a the neutron, they're more likely than other elements to break apart. What a hydrogen bomb does is it uses hydrogen, which is the lightest element on the periodic table. And instead of splitting them apart, it uses that intense heat through you know, somewhat still classified, but we know more, if you read if you read the literature, you can figure it out. Um, how they end up doing it, it fuses those hydrogen elements together, which produces a lot of neutrons. Right. And then those neutrons will um, start fission in other places. So the big thing about a bomb is you want it to be as efficient as possible within like, what, a, a fraction of a millisecond before the entire thing just breaks apart and destroys itself. You want to get as much fission reaction as you can with the elements you get, because we're talking like if you have a pound of uranium and you have it in an atomic bomb, the early ones would only maybe something like 15% efficiency in terms of the amount of material that would be fizzled and everything else just destroyed. A thermonuclear bomb can, can jump that up into greater, higher percentages, and that's why you get larger yields you know, in the end. People knew about the these ideas they, during the Manhattan Project. People were advocating the potential for it. They even called it, they gave it a name. Like the original atomic bombs were called the Gadget. That was the code name as they were working on it. And the hydrogen bomb was called the super. So you can see even the people back then, they thought that that's what be how they would do it. And that's why you get hydrogen bombs can be done upwards of, you know, at the lowest level, 50 kilotons, which is way higher than the bombs dropped over Japan. But they can be upwards of even 50 to 100 megatons. I mean, the bomb, that the Tsar Bomba that people talk a lot about, the one, the largest Russian test could have potentially been 100 megatons. But they scaled hmm. it down for just practical reasons to 50 even then that's that's pretty crazy all right so so shall we go back to the to, yeah. back to the story now so... that we officially scared everyone and described <laughs> how people would be scared at the time uh henry's like okay this is not great but i'm it doesn't concern me right he just yeah. he read something but he didn't process it right but, and like right on cue there's a blast you see his it's like his watch glass cracks, which I guess implies. I have no the, idea what that is. Was that supposed to be the shock wave? The, the but pressure he's in a wave? Vault. Oh yeah, that's true. Um, but he, there's still oxygen in there, right? It's it's somehow exposed to the outside. I don't think the door was closed all the way. Okay, probably not a good idea to just hang out in a bank vault where the door is closed, right? There's you probably run out of air at some point. I don't know if those are ventilated. The, the watch glass breaks, and then there's a lot of camera shaking, and he's like, you know, there's a lot of noise, and it implies that a nuclear bomb has gone yeah. out. It's outside. a kind of shaking in a Star Trek episode, exactly. To speak your yeah, language, yeah. where yeah. it's just the camera moving up and down, and the <laughs> yeah. characters are flopping about. And I, I mean, like, often happens in the Twilight Zone. It's sort of hitting you over the head with it. I feel like with the the clock stopping, you know, and there's mm -hmm. such this like strong connection in popular culture between like time and clocks and nuclear weapons. And so it's sort of it's like, okay, yes, you've run out of time now. Yeah. The bomb has gone yeah. off and the clock has stopped. That imagery is is pretty strong in in Watchmen. Um, the, right. the original series. I haven't seen the HBO one yet, but I know the the original comic book series. That you know, it's clock imagery is a big one, and then the clock will it stops, and then there's also a famous clock, like a pocket watch that was in Hiroshima that stopped right mm -hmm. as the bomb you know okay. exploded. So I think a lot of that is being drawn from real life history, and it just right. happens to be the imagery that we're going to see with a Henry in the bank vault. What happens? So Henry, uh, he kind of like he wakes up. Fortunately, he finds his glasses uh, and puts them back on his head. He gets out of the bank vault, and everyone he knows is pretty much gone. There's no one else left. The city is is more or less in, in ruins, except for, like, as Elliot mentioned, some key places like 
the the gun vault at a at a, um, a sporting goods store and a couple other places that we'll talk about at the end. But the town is it's completely gone. Like it seems like things are burned. There's no fire, but like it's 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 done now. There's a lot of smoke though, right? There's yeah. I feel like there's kind of smoky ash in the background. The bridges are collapsed in the background. Mm-hmm. His he goes to his apartment to try to find his wife. It's collapsed. It's, it's gone. gone. There are strangely no bodies. None. You see a hand, but it's all it's covered by rubble. Yeah, um, which I took to be sort of broadcast standards in 1959. Probably. Maybe. I mean, it pushed it enough to show a nuclear explosion in that time period. There were movies that had nuclear explosions, but it was very rare to see it on TV. Well, but uh, I, I guess a lot of, on the show, you talk a lot about the depiction of the aftermath. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'd be curious to hear from you, given the budget constraints and the, you know, the constraints of the time, how do you think it did in terms of portraying post-nuclear wasteland? I think they don't show enough uh, fire damage, but okay. for it looked like the pictures you would see of Hiroshima. Okay. Hmm. Uh, lots of buildings knocked over, especially the shots that are probably more of an effect shot where you see uh, the pan across where they didn't necessarily build that. I, I mean, it looked it looked bad. It definitely doesn't show buildings just standing until a little bit later in the in the sh- in the episode. I thought it did a pretty good job with it. And what really nails it for me is the 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 very rare uh, in a Twilight Zone episode. I think it's only about three or four of these. But there's a mid-episode narration by Rod Sterling. And I'll read this one because I think this one really, if not visually nailing it, the, the what they talk about does a great job of, of showing that. Seconds. Minutes. Hours. They crawl by on hands and knees for Mr. Henry Bemis, who looks for a spark in the ashes of a dead world. A telephone connected to nothingness, a neighborhood bar, a movie, a baseball diamond, a hardware store, the mailbox that was once his house and now is rubble. They lie at his feet as battered monuments to what was but is no more, Mr. Henry Bemis, on an eight-hour tour of a graveyard. I, I think that's pretty good. He's very shocked by it. He says, they're all dead. They must be. Everyone is dead except for me. And he, like, calls out for his wife, who I I thought he'd be happy that the wife was dead at least, but apparently not. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he he's, he wants to read. He doesn't like that she doesn't want him to read, but there's some something there. You got it. I mean, I feel that we would not sympathize with the character if his <laughs> wife, you know, was obliterated. And Although he was he, like, yeah. He started skipping. I think he forgets. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to it. I think he forgets about her later on. When, but anyway. Well, you know, the passage of time heals all wounds. I wouldn't read too much into that. There's, a, um, of course, uh, the obvious illusion here. Mr. Henry Bemis on an eight-hour tour mm-hmm. is the illusion to Gilligan's Island, right? Oh, of course. Yeah, because you know he's the last man alive, and here. it's going to last longer than eight hours, as it as definitely happens. <laughs> right. So he was he was obviously saved by the bank vault. He talks about how he's actually not all that happy, and sure, if he actually does want to live, given the fact that all he has left is he has plenty of food. Right. He talks about all this like canned food. He's got lots of cigarettes. He can survive uh, for as long as he wants, but he doesn't know if it's worth it to be this lonely and have nothing to do. Um, it reminded me of a, a famous quote that President Kennedy gave in front of the UN in 1961. So I'll, I'll read a quick version of this. A war today or tomorrow, if it led to nuclear war, would not be like any war in history. A full-scale nuclear exchange lasting less than 60 minutes with the weapons now in existence, which I think is a good reference to the hydrogen bomb given the context here, could wipe out more than 300 million Americans Europeans and Russians, as well as untold numbers elsewhere. And the survivors, as Chairman Khrushchev warned the communist Chinese, the survivors would envy the dead. 
for they would inherit a world so devastated by explosions and poison and fire that today we cannot even conceive of its horrors. And, uh, you know, of course, we have the weapons. They're still here today. So the speech didn't solve that problem. But one of the things that he negotiated that Lyndon Johnson was able to sign into to, uh, you know, law and negotiate into force later was the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which committed countries who have nuclear weapons to eventually get rid of them and countries that didn't have them agreed never to to build them. And that's kind of the, the bedrock foundation of the non-proliferation regime that we all in my field we work on today. We haven't done a great job, but, you know, obviously there's fewer numbers and things like that. Yeah. But I don't know that that sentiment that Henry describes is, is pretty well represented by that Kennedy quote from a couple years later. I don't think he's channeling Henry Bemis, but it's the same idea. Yeah. He, Henry always wanted solitude, but did he really want it at, at this particular cost? But anyways, he puts his suit on, as every good Twilight Zone episode has people look great in their suits. Yeah, I mean, it was 1959, you know? like <laughs> That's what you're supposed to wear. How long would you gentlemen, uh, after the bomb drops, <laughs> stop wearing yeah. suits? Yeah. I would... The first day, if I was wearing a suit, I'm like, this is now wrapped around my waist. Exactly. I'm not wearing At this. Least. I'm rolling my sleeves up. I'm turning Maybe these even pants into the shy a little bit. Oh, yeah. Know. I'm turning these pants into shorts, like, almost immediately. What's so interesting, I mean, you know, there's this, all his, like, material needs are taken care of. I mean, he has, still has nice clothes. He finds food stock, and you, you see him saying to himself, you know, I have plenty of food. I could eat forever. And he, he's able to sleep on a couch. His... His, like, material comforts are taken care of, but he's, like, with all the people gone, within, like, an hour or so, he, he gets struck by this crushing loneliness. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a very interesting commentary on the need for, that we have for society, that it, it is this, like, very nourishing, like, human are so, humans are social animals, and, yeah, we you can just keep us alive and feed us and all that, but... Pretty quickly, uh, you take away people, and, and people start to unravel a bit. Even for a person who didn't really care all that much about exactly. people not too long ago. Exactly. When do you describe what he ends up finding in the rubble when he's tried to tries to start a car, it doesn't work, and he gets pretty depressed, and but he finds something fancy in the rubble. You know, it's interesting what has survived in this world and what hasn't. So he he finds his way to a sporting goods store. And there's a glass case that tips over and out falls a revolver. And so he picks up the revolver and he's got kind of a a monologue about, you know, should I, I'll just end it all because um, how many, how long can I do this alone? Basically, to your point about his, yeah. his you know, isolation that, and, and he only has, I think importantly, he, he, I think specifically says like, I've read that newspaper through, you know, <laughs> 3,000 times or whatever. And how many more times can I read the newspaper? I'm super bored as well, I think, at this point. But for fortunately, he sees something off in the distance, a building that wasn't completely destroyed, the public library. Yep. Uh, despite all the fires <laughs> books the all over the right. stairs yeah so that he, survived he builds all these books he kind of piles them up uh he kind of like swims around in them like scrooge mcduck would in his own bank vault you know connecting all this stuff together with with his coins and everything uh he sees all these books he gets really excited right he's going to start to read his first book books books all the books i'll need all the books all the books i'll ever want shelley shakespeare Sure. Ah, there's time enough at last. Because now he has all this time, and his glasses slip off his head. They shatter on the ground. Just when there was time enough at last, Henry says, That's not fair. That's not fair at all. There was time now. There was all the time I ever needed. 
And, uh, you know, they're not a sponsor of the podcast, but it sounds like Henry should maybe think about a free trial of Audible uh, <laughs> audiobooks or something. Else. So there's so there's this this closing narration at the yeah. end where Rod Sterling comes back one last time. Yeah, he says the best laid plans of mice and men and Henry Bemis, the small man in the glasses who wanted nothing but time. Henry, Henry Bemis, Bemis, now just a part now of a smashed landscape, just a piece of the rubble. Just a fragment of what man has deeded to himself. Mr. Henry Bemis in the Twilight Zone. No, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you guys think of that twist? I, I actually, so what I read into this, I think, and maybe it's too much. I think he's making a commentary on just how fragile all the all the stuff that we've learned over thousands of years of being human, right? We, we had this compendium of everything we've learned. We've written it down. We've taught it to the later mm -hmm. generations. And for me, at least, him coming across this, all this knowledge, everything, and it's all before him, and it only took those glasses to kind of fall apart. I think there's some commentary being made here about, mm. with nuclear weapons, how easily we can mm. just destroy all of that and, and throw all that away, really. Uh, and and then have to start from scratch if we even get to survive. Yeah, I, that I think that is definitely in there. Uh, I keep always talking about the show threat, the movie Threads, but that is definitely the premise of it. It's called that because nuclear weapons are don't just destroy buildings and people; they literally destroy the threads that hold civilization together. Uh, that ends on about fifteen years after the bombs go off, and you see people devolve down to watching old videos of like cat skeletons. Right. And people don't even know what a cat is, and they're just watching this, and their communication is broken down. No one's got glasses. No one's reading. Even if they had all the books in the world, they would burn them in for food and fire mm -hmm. and stuff. Yeah. I wanted to read you the ending of the short story, if you wouldn't mind. I love the way that this is done, but I want to know what you guys think as opposed to how it's portrayed in the, in the show. Mm. I think they're both good in their own right, but I want to hear your guys' thoughts to this. There was the rumbling of complaining stone, minute in comparison which the epic complaints following the fall of the bomb. This one occurred under one corner of the shelf upon which Henry sat. The shelf moved, threw him off balance. The glasses slipped from his nose and fell with a tinkle. He bent down, clawing blindly and found, finally, their smashed remains. A minor, indirect destruction stemming from the sudden wholesale smashing of a city but the only one that greatly interested Henry Bemis. He sat down at the blurred page before him. He began to cry. I really like that. I, especially that language of, yeah, the, the bomb went off and it destroyed everything, but mm -hmm. the only thing... The that only thing that he... Yeah. Yeah, and I think it kind of... It goes back to... It, has he kind of... Does he really not care the fact that humanity was split up, you know? Like, yeah. it's kind of a weird... My first reaction was to say, okay, the moral of this is, like, careful what you wish for. Mm -hmm. But actually, he doesn't seem at, at points to be that concerned with the fact that the world just got you know, blown up. As long as he's going to have his glasses and be able to read the book, then it's yeah. like, okay, well, cool. That's a, that's maybe better than my life before. In a world where he had uh, gl those glasses that have the little ties around them so yeah. around his neck, you could see him being pretty content for, uh, maybe for, for decades later with his, you know, eating some spam and, right. and reading uh, Shakespeare. Right. So like he'd be fine yeah. for quite a while. Which I, I do think it's like this, whoever wrote the short story, I guess, really did not like novels or something. Because <laughs> it's like... They're too long. They're just, <laughs> too long. Yeah. It's the wife. We turn out it's the wife character oh. who, who wrote the short story. Uh, so in terms of the kind of the nuke stuff in here, um, a first question I had for you all is, did you want more buildup 
to the nuclear explosion or war, or was that simply enough for you in the story? Because in the, in the short story, there's like a magazine article that he's reading. The bomb explodes within the first two paragraphs. It's like one of the first things that happens. But then there's like a, you know, previously on, you know, flashback type thing. And there is buildup. They talk, they talk about, well, there's a collapse of conference is imminent. Salon predicts war only days away. But I think the interesting thing is Henry reads these things, but he never has enough time to read anything more than just the headlines. Mm. So he just like scans headlines and reads and reads and reads. Yeah. And I wonder if that could be commentary for our uh, news consumption culture. Would you have wanted more buildup or do you think that was sufficient? Yeah, I mean, I think as it was, for, for me, it basically, since it did kind of get to it so quickly, it kind of felt like that's just the plot device, the fact that it's a nuke. Like, it could have mm-hmm. been an asteroid sure. or a plague or just everybody disappeared a la Langoliers or whatever, <laughs> right? Like, you could have basically had any sort of disaster and that killed everybody on Earth and it would have worked just fine. It seemed slightly incidental that it was a nuclear thing. Hmm. Um, it You know, and so to me, because they dealt with it in that relatively sort of, like, quick fashion and and not exploring it too deeply it didn't feel core to the ultimate sort of like lesson we were supposed to take from it okay gabe what do you yeah no i i I agree totally i think what's more interesting about this one is what happens afterwards huh well it is i haven't thought about it like that i i think i still see some thematic thrust behind the idea of like well mankind destroyed itself and that but i i think uh it's a good point because the way they treat the detonation and the collapse of the city is as if it was just a meteor or something that hit because things that they don't really care all that much about is you know there's no discussion about radiation mm-hmm. you know having all the food in the world is no good if you are suffering from radi- radiation sickness and can't keep it down yeah and also think, would the food be okay that was one of my questions um you know it depends uh, they've done lots and lots of tests uh, back in the day about you know putting canned food relatively you know di- different distances from an atomic bomb there is a certain point where it tends to be fine depends on where it was if it was uh, directly outside and exposed to the the blast, and that's not as good as if it was if it was, say, in a uh, storage vault or in a uh, a cabinet somewhere. Mm-hmm. I think the bigger concern that you would have is that when there's fallout that happens, the fallout particles that become you know essentially it's dust and concrete and people and everything that gets mixed with radioactive particles, and that's what fallout is. And it kind of when it drops down, even a speck of dust that falls down is emitting gamma radiation. Uh, alpha beta particles that stuff if that gets to your food that's really the thing to be really concerned about canned food because it's closed tends to be okay so you have to be really sure when you're opening yeah. that that lid to not let it slide wash into it the top wash of it food. off wash it off first yeah yeah um you wash it off clean it you know one of the first things you can do and if a nuclear bomb happens and you are exposed to fallout is to clean your clothes so wherever you're going to hole up don't have the same clothes on that you had when hmm. you went previously or or you know, wash wash your hands, wash everything off, so that there's not just you're not sitting there with uh, some dust particles on you that are continuing to hurt you, and then you're everyone yeah. that's around you. I guess if everyone disappears, you probably don't need clothes, though. You could just fair yeah. enough. Yeah, Th- that's a different Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's the remake. But uh, you know, one other thing too is I'm glad that Henry was in the basement because one of the things we learn uh, that how nuclear weapons you know can hurt you is they can cause you to go either temporarily or permanently bl- blind depending on how close you are and where you're looking at the actual initial detonation and the initial flash that ends up happening. So um, one a one megaton detonation, which we know we're talking about hydrogen bombs, we can get up that high, uh, can cause you to go blind temporarily up to 13 miles away during the day. And if it's at night, it's even worse. If you're 53 miles away from a nuclear detonation and you're looking at it, it's one megatons at night, 
you can be temporarily blinded for, you know, pretty, we're talking temporary, it's yeah. like hours. Yeah. And you imagine while that's happening, there's also fires and chaos and you can't see anything. I think, uh, not to bring this back to airplanes, which I like to talk about a lot, yeah, but yeah, yeah. the pilots used to have a eye patch that they would kind of cover one eye and they'd go blind in one eye and then just... Pirates or pilots? <laughs> Both, really. Pirates yeah. of the sky. Yeah. Uh, no, no, the pilots who flew the, mm-hmm. like, nuclear bombing missions. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's... um. I don't think I've heard that story, but that sounds right. Yeah, I think they had a, an eye patch on one eye, and if the bomb went off, oh, it, would, yeah. it would blind the, the other eye, and they just moved the eye patch over, and voila, there's well, a good eye. Apparently, that's what why pirates of the seas <laughs> do it, is that they have an eye patch that when they're under the, the deck, and then they come back outside, they switch the eyes. So that their eyes can adjust. I think it's the opposite. It's when they're outside. They go down. Yeah, they want to have one that's adjusted to darkness. There we go. Um, So it's pretty bad. You know, if you're close enough, you can even have permanent uh, retinal damage and burns to your eyes, which is one of the most common injuries reported uh, in in Japan after the U.S. had dropped the atomic bombs. In addition, you know, other than obviously like burns and those things was, was blindness. Uh, for individuals um, which obviously would have been great to work into the themes of this episode so i missed opportunity there yeah it would have been nice if like he was temporarily blinded and then oh that just would have been this could have been the story could is have that just been it yeah bomb. another bomb goes off or something oh yeah him. there's no discussion about firestorms firestorms are pretty bad when you have that many a nuclear explosion can cause not only a ton of incredible fire damage by itself with the the fireball but it because of the heat that then rises up with the mushroom cloud it pulls all of the air in and creates essentially like a vortex of fire Mm -hmm. it can cause um gas pipes to burst all around a city and those can start a bunch of fires together and that all kind of go together no discussions about that obviously the books in the show are just kind of scattered about uh haphazardly on the steps and everything but you know Okay, it's all it's all fine. One story though I do want to tell is uh, about a uh, bank fault that survived a nuclear test detonation. You guys huh. want, to hear, want to hear about this? Yes. So, because I was wondering, I was like, is there any would the, would a bank vault be a good place to go if we had ten minutes? Should we drive <laughs> yeah. to our local bank? So here's here's the story. So in uh, on June twenty fourth, nineteen fifty seven, there was a thirty seven kiloton nuclear test codenamed Priscilla. Um, like a like a hurricane with a like a funny name, uh, Priscilla was serving as an experiment about whether or not a bank vault built by the Mosler Safe Company would be able to survive the detonation of a nuclear explosion. So the bank president Edwin Mosler convinced the Federal Civil Defense Administration to let him build a bank vault near Ground Zero of this test. This bank vault was something that you know Elliot would probably be able to you know whip up with his tool shed. Uh, it was a 12 feet by 8 feet by 8 feet of reinforced concrete with 10-inch thick doors about a half mile from the plast. Yeah, that'll fit nicely in my basement. Yeah, how quickly can you <laughs> yeah. pull those together? Yeah, I'm going to get working on it this afternoon. <laughs> so this experiment was called Response of Protective Vaults to Blast Loading. The bank was filled with stocks and bonds and cash and insurance policies. All this stuff is going to be real valuable right. <laughs> currency in a post-currency world. Well, right. people were concerned about if there was a nuclear war... Could there be uh, the economy surviving? If you lose all of your records, you know, like, oh, yeah, my mortgage is now paid off and I don't have a student debt oh, yeah, anymore. No, but... Yeah, you know what? I paid that. last. Put the, yeah, yeah. Put the last payment in last month, actually. Funny you ask. Like, how many human skulls do I have to pay for this uh, insurance policy? Yeah. So here's what the, the Battle Creek Inquirer, it was a newspaper, said about the test after it was done. The test was to investigate the level of resistance of materials and structures to a nuclear blast at close range and was in response 
response to the concern on the part of the banks and insurance companies over the protection of vital records and valuables. Very interestingly, in Hiroshima, after the atomic bombing, four of these uh, Mossler vaults were actually found in the ruined basement of the uh, Tekoku Bank. It was their stuff was pretty much intact. Really? On so the inside, yeah. Was this Priscilla test? Was it successful? It was. Um, you can see I have a picture of it here in our show notes, and I'll, I'll link it in, uh, in the show notes of our episode. Uh, the Priscilla test confirmed that the bank vault would be able to withstand, you know, these test conditions. It doesn't answer the question of what happens when there's a thermonuclear detonation as opposed to, you know, a 37 kiloton test. Uh, but more importantly, is what Gabe was kind of joking and hinting at earlier is what happens to a national economy when there's paperwork is there, but, you know, no people. Does a people actually make up an economy in terms of the what what it is and what's the purpose of having all of these documents when the people themselves have died? You know, one fun thing is uh, former podcast guest Clark and I visited the National Atomic Test Site last year, uh, which is outside of Las Vegas in Nevada, uh, and we actually got to drive past this bank vault in person. We talk about it on episode 25 of our, of our podcast here. Um, it was, you know, certainly interesting. They talked about it like, oh, yeah, they built this bank vault so that they could show that everything would be fine. And the people who were given the tour were like, yeah, this is clearly proof that if you try hard, you can survive these things. Right, right. Um, and but if you look at the the vault itself, it's it's a, it's a shambles. It's a, it's looking pretty bad right so, now. So okay, it's so the money out these days, the money and the banks and the gold and everything would would survive. If if you were a person down there, is yeah. that good protection? I mean, does it protect you from radiation, for example? Or, and I mean, you would physically survive, but would the radiation get you in there? As long as you had air, it is essentially you can have a. A fallout shelter bunker does not have to be underground. The reason why it's really helpful underground is because you can survive the blast, you know, the, the shock wave. That's a thing that concerns you. Gamma radiation can't go through everything. Okay. Um, if you have enough concrete and then dirt and or maybe even just air, like if you are in the center of a, of a, a large building and all that's between you and the outside where there's fallout accumulating is like a good amount of air, that's okay, because gamma radiation doesn't go on forever. Hmm. It eventually kind of breaks apart and becomes less concerning for you. The more things you can put between you, it's better. Like concrete and lead, lead is the best. You know, hmm. X amount of lead thickness is good. Yeah. Uh, concrete is also pretty good. You know, you can have you need a little bit more of it. Uh, dirt is also really good. Sandbags and things are quite good. So you want to do is you want to layer all those things together for your fallout shelter. And you can have an above ground fallout shelter if you're far enough away from the blast radius. Then if you're, all you're concerned about is radiation, you're you could be okay. There you go. Well, I'll be spending a lot more time at my local bank to <laughs> make some friends. Well, with. yeah, it's kind of interesting because the physics. I guess I mean we're just talking about uh, a, a wavelength of wave, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you're so I'm in the uh, the residential energy efficiency field mm -hmm. um and it, when you're talking about this i'm like oh that's just like insulation in a wall yeah yeah this is just one more reason to insulate your walls you know <laughs> although with something heavy but it, it is the same thing it's like if you put enough concrete on a wall you'll get insulation out of it mm -hmm. you know if you put enough and same thing with sound right sounds just another wavelength and right. so it's like if you you know you get enough mass there and, and it, it's just stuff that wave has to travel through uh so that's that episode um let's go to the next one here uh which is no time like the past season four episode 10 uh, originally shown as we mentioned earlier on march 7th 1963 this one is much less well known than time enough at last uh but elliot why don't you get to start us off here by reading the opening narration which describes you know pretty pretty well what the opening premise of this is exit one paul driscoll a creature of the 20th century he puts to a test a complicated theorem of space-time continuum, but he goes a step further, or tries to. 
Shortly, he will seek out three moments of the past in a desperate attempt to alter the present. One of the odd and fanciful functions in a Shadowland known as the Twilight Zone. <laughs> Gabe, what is this about? Yeah, so there's this guy, Paul Driscoll. Um, he seems to be some sort of very brilliant scientist who builds a time machine. And uh, and also well-dressed. Uh, very, uh, of course. He's got a suit on. I think it's like, yeah, it might even be a three-piece. He's got lots of layers under there. Is it a double-breasted three-piece? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. With waistcoat. Uh, and the scene is a very dramatic workspace that he's in on top of this big column. And he has his assistant there who's kind of like saying, you're mad. Why are you exposing yourself to this risk? And, you know, he goes out on this this long monologue saying, basically, we're, we're all at risk now. This is, you know, 1960, whatever. You know, there's a possibility of nuclear war. Uh, there's something in the milk. I forget what, what he says. Strontium-90. Strontium-90 in the milk and all that. And he says, well, you're accepting danger here as well. I'm going to go try to fix this. Did you happen to drink milk this morning, Harvey? What was the strontium-90 content of the glass? And has it occurred to you that the things you've been eating over the last couple of years might be turning your bones into sawdust? Oh, Harvey, speak to me of jeopardy if you will, but don't make it sound as if I have an exclusive franchise on the calculated risk. You and I both share this dubious distinction with several million of our peers who inhabit the 20th century. I will now tell you as succinctly as possible how I classify the times. We live in a cesspool, a septic tank, and the keeper of this sewer man he is a scientifically advanced monkey who walks upright and with eyes wide open into an abyss of his own making his bombs his fallout his poisons his radioactivity everything he designs as an art for dying is his excuse for living no harvey we live in a in an exquisite bedlam an insanity maybe all the more grotesque by the fact that we don't recognize it as insanity plan is to go back to certain key events in time, uh, recent history, to change the timeline and, and take the world off of this perilous course that leads to mm -hmm. you know, global conflict and nuclear weapons, and he's going to use his time machine to do that. Did it seem like to you, based on uh, watching the episode, he's in a world that's like an alternate history of our world in 1963, where there have been atomic wars that are maybe an exchange of two countries, not just dropping them on, on Japan, and that there's actually a fully poisoned world? Or is this just his take on our actual timeline that, that you know, it's, it's certainly a dangerous world. There's radiation in the air, water, and food due to atomic testing and things. Which of those did you guys thought that that was? Elliot, what do you think? I took it to be that he's just very disillusioned with 1963 basically living in the world he's he's kind of standing in for all of us as at least like american society you know the cuban missile crisis had happened in 1962 so mm -hmm. i do think that was this thing that that made these fears much more visceral you know previously it was okay the bombs have been tested and stuff but this is like whoa we were actually within a hair's breadth of it so i think it's to me that scans that it's like realistic that he would i think he's on the far end of the spectrum of that mm -hmm. the reason that i think we're not actually at nuclear war at that point is the reticence of his assistant who is kind of saying you know it's not that bad like this isn't a good course of action i feel like if we were actually in nuclear war mm -hmm. it it would be more like all hands on deck sure let's let's go back and try to change the past like it can't hurt right it's I worth did, a shot i thought his assistant was the one who was just like disillusioned what are you going to do about it trying to make your own like life but when i first watched this i thought it was way more in the future i thought you know 
for them maybe like 2020 as mm. opposed to uh, 1963 uh, and that there had been nuclear wars and things are bad and that's the very, world is slowly dying and that's then, a very interesting read i had not thought about that at all no well i think uh, i think that's plausible though i i could see that anyway so whatever the scenario is he decides paul driscoll to you know maybe he didn't think about this all, all that well thought out but <laughs> he's gonna he's he, a very smart guy because he obviously invented a time machine yeah right yeah, but yeah. i feel that he lost the thread on some of the details of the plot after that point exactly okay he's good with the tactics not so much with the strategy right (laughs) yeah so he goes to three points in history as uh as gabe mentioned he goes first to hiroshima japan on august 6 1945 which was the the day of the atomic bombing he tries to warn a police captain about the incoming uh bomber attack by the united states doesn't work paul gets sent back to his timeline the police captain who fortunately speaks English uh, just thinks he's a crazy person. Why would he believe anything that he's talking about? Yeah, but he kind of is a crazy person because he gives this warning like 10 minutes before the bomb goes off. And he's I mean, it, it would be lunatic and they need some time to figure out if it's credible. So why is he going there 10 minutes before and they're going to evacuate yeah. the whole city in 10 minutes? I think I mean, I, I was hard on that the episode the same way in the notes here. I think the idea is that he got to somewhere else and then got arrested okay because he's an, a, a random american hanging out in a war tour in japan and they held him in a jail for a while before he was able to talk to the captain he should have brought a movie like or a picture yeah. of like the bomb and been like look i'm like this is what's going to happen like that would have been more compelling than just some crazy american dude who shows up his suit was modern <laughs> right <yeah>. right <laughs> like you don't have it's very important you don't have double-breasted suits like that in uh, 1945 I mean, I do think it could be that he's kind of operating with a level of naivete of human nature and stuff, you know, because I do think it kind of goes along with his disillusionment and his sort of pacifism philosophy as well that he expresses like throughout and whatever. And I just think when you put the stuff together, it's like the flip side of the disillusion he feels is maybe an idealism about human nature that like, oh, if I could only Mm. go back and explain it to people, you know, then they would, they'd, of course they would listen. I could only tell this police captain who may or may not have the authority to evacuate a city and may not have the, may or may not have the capability to do it in 10 minutes. Right. And I also don't understand too what, what that would solve. Say it it works. Yeah. And the bomb is dropped. How does that stop future atomic wars or anything? If anything, does that not cause the United States to be like, shoot, they got us. Yeah. Well, now we'll drop three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Nagasaki was not the, you know, Hiroshima was a target, but Nagasaki was the backup target. There was another city that originally was planned, but the weather prevented them from being able to go to that target. So they went, you know, they went somewhere else. Originally, Kyoto was one of the cities that was meant to be a target, but the guy uh, who was involved in, you know, planning, uh, I think it was Henry Stimson, the Secretary of Defense, at one point had said, you know, him and his wife visited Kyoto and it was beautiful. And they're like, we're not going to put this on yeah. on the target list. Yeah. So they, so I, I don't know really what the logic behind this is. I also uh, think it was like a very myopic kind of American perspective to say, I'm going to go and put the onus on the Japanese to yeah, evacuate. good point. That that's, like, why didn't we go to FDR and say, like, hey, don't call for the bombs? You <laughs> right. know, or go back to Oppenheimer and say, like, hey, don't, like, do the Manhattan Project. There is a debate in historian circles about whether or not the United States actually did warn Japan, uh, in particular Hiroshima, in advance about the atomic bomb. There's these things called LeMay leaflets, which are named after Curtis LeMay. Curtis bombs away LeMay, who was uh, uh, head of strategic bombing in the Pacific Theater in World War II. They're, these were dropped on cities on August 1st in Japan. And what they warned was, quote, 
Read this carefully as it may save your life or the life of a relative or friend. In the next few days, four or more of the cities named on the reverse side of this leaflet will be destroyed by American bombs. We are determined to destroy all of the tools of the military clique and they are, that they are using to prolong this useless war. In accordance with America's well-known humanitarian policies, the American Air Force, which does not wish to injure innocent people, now gives you the warning to evacuate the cities named and save your lives. Now, it sounds pretty bad, but of course, these were not talking about atomic weapons. They were talking about firebombing, mm. which had done an incredible amount of damage in, in Tokyo and other cities. Um, and I, we're not 100% sure, based on the things that I've been reading, that they actually were given to Hiroshima mm -hmm. uh, in, in advance. Well, it's also kind of like when you, you're you like, you know, I'm just going to keep punching yeah. my fist and walk towards you. And if you don't move, it's your fault. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like this doesn't – this isn't really exculpatory at all or fair. I mean, yeah. I think it's the same thing in the episode. Like why would the Japanese uh, captain like listen to him? He thinks he's a spy. I think that's the obvious conclusion you would come to. If you receive one of these leaflets, I think you'd be like, this is a piece of disinfo yeah, exactly. propaganda that's just trying to, us to well, abandon and, the city. And exactly. just the people that – I mean, I, I'm listening to uh, – uh, hardcore history dan carlin's doing a series on the japanese it just seemed like the whole country was just very focused on supporting the state and yeah they they would see that and nobody's gonna move but i never i never understood i think we may have talked about it why not just drop the bomb like next to the city so they can see mm. what america has and and say okay if you don't surrender we're yeah. gonna start dropping this stuff that's much more credible i think than some leaflets well you can listen to the next episode of this podcast which will be released uh in february we covered the movie fat man and little boy which was a, a movie with a stellar cast of people like laura dern uh paul newman john cusack and it was garbage <laughs> but um the movie it covers the debates of the scientists in the manhattan project who called for exactly that a test demonstration bring japan uh their officials over to the united states they'll watch this test detonation happen and then you'll say the next one is on your head uh surrender and this was completely debated, and this is the debate that people, if they have any exposure in high school to nuclear weapons, it's often this debate about should we have used the bomb, how should we have used it, was it really to cause Japan to surrender, who was already offering to surrender, but just not unconditionally, they wanted to keep their emperor, uh, or was it to show the world that the United States is now a player on the world stage, is it to scare the Russians into not invading U.S. interests around the world? That's certainly the debate that was there, but there was a petition by this a scientist uh, who was heavily involved, in, who invented and conceived of the idea of nuclear fission, a super critical chain reaction. Um, Leo Szilard, he had a petition among scientists exactly calling for that particular point. After Hiroshima, you know, the bombing of Hiroshima, the army, funny enough uh, to the story, they did actually order... The, the army did, not scientists or anyone else involved in the project. The army itself ordered atomic bomb warning leaflets to be written up and produced, uh, but it took too long. Uh, by the time they uh, had all these things printed, they didn't actually coordinate when the bomb was going to be dropped on the second city, which was not too far after. They had these leaflets and they dropped them, uh, but they dropped them the day after the bomb happened. So as people were surviving... Uh, trying to survive the after effects of the Nagasaki bombing, these leaflets came down and said, "Hey, watch out!" Essentially, and that was this is according to historian Alex wow. Wellerstein. Pretty, it's pretty wild. Uh, so what what does Paul do next, Gabe? Because he's he's failed at stopping yeah, so, the atomic bombings in Japan. Somehow, so what's next? Somehow he's not killed in the bombing of. Um... He just he when he wants to he 
kind of like fades yeah, away. Yeah, there's like the smoke comes back. and it's yeah. But so okay, so his next mission, um, his next attempt, I should say, is he goes to Berlin in August 1939. This is before uh, World War II starts. Um, he goes to a hotel room. It's overlooking this this rally where where Hitler is, is speaking, and he pulls out this rifle um, that he's gonna he's gonna assassinate uh, Hitler. But he kind of gets thwarted at one point. The 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 housekeeper comes in and. For whatever reason, he like lets her in, yeah. um, and then uh, he, he forgot he, to put out the little "do not disturb." Yeah, right. Yeah, he has a conversation with her where she's kind of saying, "Oh, how great is our Führer?" And he he responds lukewarm, and she looks at him suspiciously, mm. and then he goes to 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 kill Hitler again and takes the shot, but it doesn't fire. So he loads another round in the chamber, and then the SS the the, the housekeeper comes back with the SS. Uh, troops to to find him and he loses his opportunity which for me like once again if you're gonna do this why not just go back and like kill baby hitler Mm -hmm. um or something like that rather than this complicated plot and also why not just keep going back and trying to do this over and Mm -hmm. over as a one-shot time right like for instance had you not opened the door to the chambermaid and just took your shot that you had lined up like that probably would (laughs) have she would have waited you know what i mean you're kind of the next room yeah exactly and is the thought here that you kill hitler it means that there's no Nazi Germany, no World War Two, no justification to build the bomb in the first place. And therefore, the United States would be like, well, we could, but so eh, I, what's I, the reason to? I, the, the interesting thing is he does kind of have a broader pacifism than just the nuclear stuff. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so I think you could also – I think part of it is that as well. Makes um, sense. That you know, he's talking about convention – like he, he has a problem with conventional warfare at all as mm-hmm. well. So it's not just about nukes. And so I think that could be part of – I don't want to the thing. That. I mean, that's this is the this is the obvious. Like, if you're going to do one thing, you're going to kill Hitler, right? So, that's probably all they're thinking here. But, but I agree. Like, especially like, why not go back to a, like not at the rally? You know, like, yeah, yeah. Go back to art school or something. Yeah, Hitler there, yeah, you know? right. Yeah, exactly. Be like Hitler. You're actually a great artist. Go <laughs> exactly. Go be, do paintings. It's really nice yeah. art. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this this idea that he has general pacifism really leads him to his his third destination. Elliot, why don't you cover a cover this one his final stop sure and this we're, we're covering a lot this is all really it's funny it's all like act one this whole thing we're talking about is like within 10 minutes yep yep um, which i think is part of what's so weird about this it's like you're like oh this is gonna be an episode about killing baby hitler yeah. and then <laughs> we sort of do three plots very quickly um in a 45 minute episode so the third attempt is he um he's on board the lusitania uh which is a you know the british ocean liner um that we know was torpedoed uh on may 6 1915 by a german u-boat thereby basically leading to america's uh, engagement in world war one right? right not immediately like a year later but certainly but like when you read the history books yeah. that's like how they explain it that that was sort of the the a critical turning point right right and of course he's just what does he say he's just like hey there's there's a german u-boat out there turn around or be on the lookout and yeah they're like we got you only this. have to change it one degree you only have to change it one degree and it's again like why would you expect this guy to listen to you there's there's no reason the captain does the right thing and has him sent to the brig or whatever mm-hmm. you know I, I I thought again in terms of the American myopia, the fact that the focus is on like the Lusitania and not like yeah. saving you know Franz Ferdinand or something could have prevented the whole war, maybe, or maybe it was inevitable, anyways. Right? He, he definitely seems like one of those people that's uh he's got the magic powers, but he can't make choices for people. He uh-huh. needs to make have them convince them to do their own. It's like he's like he's Gandalf. He's like I right. can't take the ring myself, but mm. uh, I need to have the people of this world make these decisions for themselves. I'm just gonna give you some information and maybe point you in the right direction 
But that's about it. Yeah. So it seems like he is maybe not as concerned about the war in general as long as America's not involved. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's also fascinating, too, that, that, that they focus on World War One because mm-hmm. there's a new movie coming out this year, I think called 1917. That's about World War One. But, you know, it really today, most people don't talk about World War One yeah. all that much. Oh, I guess the Wonder Woman movie took place in World War One, But, again, that was like a novel, you know, thing for people. But I think it was fascinating. I read this somewhere that uh, when this episode came out – that time was closer to World War One than we are today to World War Two. Yeah. So it shows you if we were to make this today, it would be about Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But even then, that's pretty far. That's incredible. Pretty far away. So would this, if we were to remake this today, would it be about nine eleven? Yeah. No, that's a good question. Um, but you know, I mean, World War One kind of set the board game or set the chessboard for World War Two, basically. So mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so, anyway. so ultimately, Paul, he fails at all three of these attempts, and he believes that they're now operating under Terminator rules, which means that, uh, the like the Terminator movies, which we covered on, on this podcast with our friend uh, Alex, time travel rules for Terminator is, is that, you know, the, the history is what it is in the future. Uh, you can't really change the your present by changing the past. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever you do will ultimately still cause it to happen, just... Because the president already know it already accounts for the fact that you were going to go back and right. do that. Anyway. It's not like Back to the Future rules, which is you can create a separate split timeline where right. Donald Trump becomes president. And they know that weird plan, <laughs> right? Like that timeline, which no, would never happen. Like, All right. So what's this dude's solution then? Well, I think he decides to pack it up, right? He, he decides, uh, <laughs> uh, all right, um, I, I can't think of any other plans like killing baby Hitler or sabotaging the Manhattan Project, pushing this guy we talked about earlier, Leo Szilard, who invented the idea of, of supercritical chain reactions by kind of in London standing at a crosswalk waiting for the time to cross. You know, instead of pushing him into the street, uh, he decides just to go back to his like a hometown, right? A place that, I don't know if it's a hometown, but it's a, it's like a small town. Homeville, Indiana, 1881. So he goes way back into the past. Uh, he, he, go, he goes to basically when life was uh, was good, right? When you're free of modern problems like atomic weapons and radiation. Was, for me, this was so interesting because there seems to be this, among some people today, this nostalgia for the time that this guy was part of, like, you know, 1950s, mm-hmm. 1960s. Oh, like, oh, it was a simpler time. And Americana, you know, yeah, Main yeah. Street, USA. And this was, like, a very similar vision that this guy had. It was just a little bit earlier. I mean, this mm-hmm. quaint town with, like, bunting and the town square and children singing and preparing for July forth and mm-hmm. he's just feels so refreshed going back there yeah El- um, elliot are we gonna be telling our kids like in 20 or 30 years we're like <laughs> i remember that time in the two th- the 2000s when uh you know i think we're already doing so it easy. like the yeah. new season of stranger things that takes place in the mall oh you know? yeah and there's the new wonder woman 1984 and stuff the i think for 80s us it's the 80s and yeah. it's the mall is the the town square yeah for sure we, um, we we forget the obvious point that this dude's a white guy going back to 1881. Like, right. that's, yeah. Everything's great. It, it's yeah. only nostalgic Being because he man, happens to be yeah, a white guy. Exactly. Um, uh, for sure. We need to make that point right away here. But Does this episode uh, give you some some vibes of uh, Star Trek? I know we we, we, talk, we yes. covered on previously. So I was thinking City on the Edge of Forever. When I was seeing this, I'm like, yeah, this is totally that. And yeah, just to recap quickly, that we covered it on the podcast. So that's an episode where the crew of the Enterprise goes back in time and has to face this big dilemma of whether they meddle in the timeline or not. They they choose not to meddle. And uh, that one is if you if they meddle by saving a woman from being pushed in the street, she becomes a pacifist leader, keeps the United States out of World War II. The Germans win. They build an atomic bomb. The world sucks. Yeah. 
the no 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 Starfleet. So, yeah, so they have to let her die. But um, but this guy, I mean, he's uh, he he similarly to City on the Edge of Forever, he falls in love with a woman. Um, they're at some dinner where he starts talking his pacifist rhetoric in the face of this guy who's really like a, this this war hawk. And it's a uh, great scene. It's the best scene I think yeah, of the episode. No, it's, absolutely, it's, it's quite good. And uh, so because the 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 um dinner guy who's like the the bank president or something, interestingly, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. Um, another evil bank president. Right, but but not doesn't have the look of a man who's been to war right yeah. he of who maybe you know somehow he got out of uh fighting in the civil war perhaps rod Stilly um, must have been denied a bank loan at one point <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so he is sort of uh he he's sort of a war hawk and he's saying you know yeah we should plant our flag everywhere we should take the land away from you know the indians um whatever he and uses so... another word for indians that mm-hmm. we're not going to say here <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. no but but this woman you know this woman falls in love with him because of his pacifist views and it's clear that that he like he knows things because he uh the the assassination of james garfield happens mm-hmm. the night that that he's talking to this woman and he's like oh so it's happened already and she's like what's up with this dude like he knows something and you can tell he's very tortured by living in this world where he knows these bad things yeah. that are going to happen but he's very resolved at least up to a certain point to say i'm not going to get involved i'm not going to save save james garfield i'm going to just live my life, try not to interfere. And actually, his friend gives him this warning before he goes and says, you know, beware, anything you do can change the timeline. You know, like a like a butterfly effect type thing. And uh, we don't have to get into, like, there's a few other little things in this episode, but the real quick thing that happens at the end, the twist is that Paul, like he said, vows not to change the past, but he realizes all of a sudden that, oh, shoot, that woman that I um, now am in love with, she's a school teacher today. 13 kids burn in a fire mm-hmm. at that school. Oh, I think I know how to stop this. So he does something to try to stop it, but it directly causes what ends up killing all of those kids. Yeah, I think he reads in a book that the school is burned down because a, a carriage goes out of control and, the, and the, the kerosene lamp from the carriage flies off. And by trying to stop the carriage from doing that, right. he causes a commotion and the horses run off and, and yeah, end up burning And he had, he had been warned before he went back to Homeville he discovered that he couldn't change anything in the previous in the first three mm-hmm. times and then he'd been warned go back and you you know do not try to change anything because any slight change you make may affect the future yeah which i felt like so now we switch from terminator rules to, to the back to the right. future yeah, rules. yeah, yeah. Exactly. and so that's what that's what became i think very confusing it's like what is the lesson here if if the lesson it has to do with time travel and the right way to do time travel you've introduced two different sets of rules because if you can't change the future anyways then it's yeah. like just do whatever you want to one do of, because one of those, one of those kids that was killed was a German uh, Austrian exchange student <laughs> yeah. who right. eventually yeah. now invents the bomb earlier and gives Hitler a, a super atomic weapon right. that he drops from blimps. What was interesting for me about this though just quick aside is what because he was so resolute he's not going to change anything and yeah. for him it's never really explained the episode I mean it's implied that it's because it's a woman that he he has fallen for, but it, it he makes this decision. He's like, oh, screw it! I'm I'm actually yeah. gonna I'm gonna start getting involved now. To me, it, I well, wish. I mean, twenty three school children yeah. burning in a fire. That's so. pretty visceral, you know. Yeah, and I think Elliot's got some great stuff on this in a second. So let's get into that. Uh, Gabe, why don't you read us our closing narration? The um, the the lesson learned for as according to Rod, Rod Sterling for Paul. Incident on a July afternoon, 1881. A man named Driscoll, who came and went, and in the process learned a simple lesson, perhaps best said by a poet named Lathbury, who wrote, Children of yesterday, heirs of tomorrow, what are you weaving? Labor and sorrow? Look to your looms again. 
Faster and faster fly the great shuttles prepared by the master. Life's in the loom. Room for it. Room. Tonight's tale of clocks and calendars in the Twilight Zone. Is room a verb in that sentence? I think I looked up, because uh, I was wondering if there's more to this poem, and I looked it up, and I think it's actually, there's life in the loom, make room for it. Oh, make sh- room for it. Should I? Which, make- no, I, I, I th- I'm, I'm not sure if that was. I, this is what it is original. according to the, the Wikipedia entry for. Yeah, it could have been an error episode. or some intentional editing in the original episode. But, mm. I, but in other words, I took this to mean uh, there's there's life in the loom, so make room for that life. Okay. You know, basically, just get back to work, and your your work can make things better. You know, and you can have this some hope, yeah. which is kind of required for a, a good life, right? Interesting. Well, Elliot, you uh, this uh, this episode um of the of the Twilight Zone, it's a little unfocused in the sense and uneven because the first act is really quick. That's where he goes back in time, try to solve all those things. That's where the the, the Hiroshima scene takes place. The second act is like a, is when he goes back to the time um the, in, in indiana in 1881 and it's kind of really relaxed and then act three is the quick like oh shoot i need to save those th- those kids you make some sense f- for us of, okay. of what this episode is trying to what tell we're us. trying to do yeah so i uh i think i had the same reaction that we all did of like if you look at this literally as a time travel narrative it the it's kind of a mess and it doesn't really we talked about it switches time travel rules and stuff and so it's like i'm not really sure what what lesson to draw from it in that sense right i think the other thing about this is i you know uh, apparently in season four of the twilight zone they all went to an hour Mm. which is i don't know if there were any there i think there might have been some other hour ones as specials you know along the way but uh, most of them were a half an hour and so um it definitely got the sense that it was kind of longer and a little aimless and meandering, you know, and I, I think maybe part of that was like they were trying to fill time or it yeah. was just more ambitious. Maybe it was more ambitious, you know, than kind of Rod Serling was used to doing because I think most of the Twilight Zones are pretty straightforward and yeah. simple ideas, right? That were... Act one, act two, act three, you're act, done. And they're all happening in 22 minutes. 22 minutes. Exactly. Okay. So um, I think this episode makes more sense if you take the time travel just as a plot device. Right, so in the first episode we watched, the atomic bomb was really the plot device. It was the sci-fi plot device, but mm-hmm. it wasn't really what the episode was about. The episode was about this guy's desire to read and careful what you wish for and whatever. Yep. I think in this episode, the time travel is the plot device, and what it's really about are fears of living in the nuclear age. Oh, you're speaking my language. Keep okay. Preach. Keep preaching. So let's break this down, okay? I want to. I'm going to try to convince you of this. So I. It, you know, it's actually a parable about uh, kind of us as society living in uh, the nuclear age. So to set the stage, um, you know, this was released in 1963. The Cuban Missile Crisis had happened one year before that. And, you, you know, that was really like a shocking event to the national psyche where nuclear annihilation was now possible or maybe even inevitable, mm-hmm. as opposed to just this intellectual thing that we know they're out there. We know they've been used and it was a human tragedy, but... But now it really feels like, oh, my God, we almost went extinct, right? So that's in the back of the audience minds. And at the beginning of the episode, Driscoll gives, expresses a general disillusionment with the 20th century. But all the specifics he actually talks about are very tied to the nuclear weapons specifically. Yes, strontium-90 in the milk. Quote, bombs, fallout, poisons, radioactivity. And then he kind of ends that monologue with, Ultimately, somebody pushes a button. And just as ultimately, this earth disappears. Few germs will rise up out of the rubble and wave microscopic flags of victory and shed a few microscopic tears for the race of men. 
So I think, I don't know if he realizes it, but that's really what's driving him to this point of disillusion. Mm -hmm. The other motivator is his pacifist philosophy, which seems sincerely concerned with the evils of all wars, including conventional wars. Because they do, he does mention, you know, basically every American conflict between the Civil War and the uh, Korean War at some point in the episode. So we're not just talking about nukes, but I... And maybe the point is human history basically is this long list of wars that got us to this point. Um, and now the nukes exist, uh, the next war may be the last one. Mm -hmm. Right. So what, what is what they say? The World War One and Two were fought with bombs and planes, World War Three will be nukes, World War Four will be sticks and stones. Right, exactly. So I think the question that the episode is trying to answer is what is the right way to deal with the fear that we all feel living in a time when nuclear bombs threaten our very existence? So, okay, what do you guys think? Are you with me so far? With you. Yeah, I'm trying. Okay, cool. So, um, and, and, and that's such a strong way to start this episode. That's what I think is disappointing in the narrative of, of that it kind of falls apart. But we're kind of all there in the beginning of the episode. So what I really think is it's going through three stages of dealing with the fear, okay? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the seven stages of grief, okay? But it's abbreviated. I gotta get you a whiteboard. We'll break this down. <laughs> All right, here we go. Okay, so stage number one is magical thinking. And so I think his three attempts at changing World War One to, it's basically him just trying to, like, wish it away, right? He's, like, he's, it's, it's almost like, I wish there was a genie where I could get three wishes. Mm -hmm. By the way, there's smoke and stuff when he goes back in time. Mm -hmm. And he gets his three yeah. wishes. And I think the way that the things fail is dumb but the point that the episode is trying to tell us is basically what we already know which is magic isn't real there are no genies there is no you know magical solution it's less like a genie and it's more like those pop-up ads that are like one weird trick to lose 100 <laughs> weight uh, right 100 100 pounds it's it's have this uh asahi uh, i forget what the thing is called but you know it's like the berry that no one knows what it is and it will solve everything. You just click this button. Goji barrier or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You click that one thing and you'll be fine. That's kind of what he is thinking. Exactly. Exactly. You know, ultimately, for one reason or another, that's that's not true. And we kind of know that, right? That's a natural first place to go, though. Is Sure. Even though we know it's not true. Gosh, wouldn't it be nice? It's an actual type just... of thinking. The next place he goes in his mind is he, he realizes there's no quick fix. And he basically falls back to our, you know, human prime directive of self-preservation. And with this plan to travel back to 1881 and and he he knows that even though this this is going to require living as a passive resident and you know not being able to be an active participant in history but you know basically just can i at least individually escape this right and so um traveling back to 80, 1881 obviously puts about a physical danger but i think the fact that he picks a place that's got that pay you know this imagined pastoral place with a lawn and summer concerts and stuff it's not just about the physical danger i think it's if anything even more so about psychological safety mm. and seeking that right uh which asterisks if you're a white man right <laughs> right, right. It, it's not necessarily a place that's going to offer psychological safety to um to other people but um but it will to, it will to him that's what he imagines and that's really like uh, like just society wise yeah there's the possibility that we're all going to be burned up in the future but the current thing we're actually suffering from our current scars are actually the fear that we're living in right the psychological right damage that that's trend trauma that that's creating it's one of the most you know unique things about the the nuclear age is that it took a long time for americans to enter world war one or two because it was over there they can't reach us we have oceans to protect us from principally of an american perspective nuclear bombs and bombers and icbms they cause even small countries like north korea to be able to threaten the very psyche of the united states and mm -hmm. now we're like shoot this little country over here that can barely feed itself now they can destroy american cities that adds an extra level of fear than you normally would never have 
unless you're watching that terrible Red Dawn remake where North Korea invades the United States. Right. So this, so this stage two, another way, like the word I, I was thinking of for this was escapism mm-hmm. is essentially what he's trying to do. And it kind of reminded me of, you know, the survivalist movement that took off in this time mm-hmm. period where people were building bunkers out in the woods. And it was essentially like, I'm going to check out of society and you all might not survive, but I've, I'm at least going to, you know, be able to ride this out. Oh, it's interesting because you do see in the in the episode just how that sense of relief when he when he goes back to this time he just he looks so he's like oh i'm i'm far from that i mean obviously it changes he realizes it's not but yeah you could you definitely get that sense that he's um he's just so ha- he feels he feels like this huge weight a is huge lifted. sense of relief and, yeah. and i think it's kind of he, it's such a quick turn in the episode from like i'm going to go back and save the world right. to you know screw it i'm out of <laughs> <Yeah>. here <laughs> see y'all bye Frick, yeah, see you suckers <laughs> but if we're being honest that's a pretty human emotion, right? That's sure. a, that's a pretty human reaction. And like, how can we really be sure until we're in that moment? Who among us will actually be down there in the rubble yeah. pulling it out, and who among us will be out in our, you know, in the woods trying to get, you know, save ourselves? If Henry Bemis had a time machine, he would a hundred percent go in the future, get a Kindle, paper white, and then go way back in time and and read books. Uh, before humans even evolved into being able to stand up. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, he'd be like, I'd rather concern yeah. myself with, like, dinosaurs interrupting my, my book. Totally. Yeah. Totally. As long as Henry Bemis had his glasses, he would have he never left stage two escapism. He was very happy just living in that forever. He never would have left the big vault. Our man Driscoll does not have that reaction. Ultimately, he, he works through something, and, you know, we won't go into the specifics of it again, but I think the point is, ultimately, he comes uh, through that and realizes, like, that escapism isn't going to work for him. That's not a good mm-hmm. solution either. That just makes him an, a passive, you know, a viewer of history, and, you know, it's it, he needs to be active in it. He's know, a pacifist, but... Not a passive actor, right? <laughs> Not a passive actor, right. yeah. So what, what's stage three? So stage three is acceptance and hope. Uh, basically, you know, I think this is summed up in the his kind of closing monologue thing, which is to leave the yesterdays alone and do something about the p- tomorrows. They're the ones that count, the tomorrows, mm-hmm. right? So he's sort of saying, you know, there there's hope in... Uh, if if we can work to make the world a better place, there's hope in that. Even though it's it's a scary situation we're in. Um, and Rod Serling concludes with the poem you read, which my rephrasing of it is basically: "Good things are possible if you put your head down and get back to work." Right. So we need to accept the reality that of today's world, the fact that it is a scary place, um, but also hope for improving it if we work at it. Right. Which is, I guess, a good a good place to thank all of uh, our friends and maybe listeners who are working in nuclear nonproliferation and on these issues. Yeah, well, the ones there's definitely some of us that are building the bombs and trying to make them the world safer by increasing deterrence and all of that stuff. But I, I think even them, they their heart may be in the the right place. Um, Gabe, what do you think of what uh, Elliot put together here and laid it out? No, I think it's it's a really interesting interpretation and and just you know, the different, the different reactions. It did help to make sense of this kind of narrative for me. I, I think, you know, when I watched it, I got the sense of we're always doing things that can change other people's lives in ways that we don't know. The difference for him is when he goes to the past, he, he knows how he's doing it. Mm. But for, for us today, we don't have visibility in terms of how the actions we do can or, or cannot, you know, change something. And so I think the, for me, the message fits very well into that kind of third piece of, you know, let's do the best we can today, mm. you know, rather than going back and trying to change it. But, you know, think 
think think ahead and think about you know the actions that we have today and how they affect the future. Right. Yeah, I, I think Good it's point. I think it's great with the way the way you outlined it because it, it really is sums up well the way people think about these topics is that the it's so easy when you're faced with dangers of, of whether it's the nuclear age and global destruction or even it's just like a really hard part of your life you're going through a stressful moment maybe you you lost a, a family member or someone's sick or something it's so easy to get like really overwhelmed by that and you become a passive mm-hmm. observer and you want to just escape and and then go back to a time where it was easier for you whether that was easy for you at the time or not it's one of the things that's so important about um people who try to move the needle on nuclear danger towards the other direction of, of, of safety is to find ways to harness that fear and anxiety and don't just stoke it. People can stoke it and then you can have other reactions. You can have really bad reactions. Yeah. Uh, look at all this danger. We need to build up our own kind of bo- uh, bombs and more and build a – they've got – oh, the Russians have atomic bombs. We need the super. Oh, they've got uh, bombers. Now we need missiles. Oh, they've got missiles. Let's drop them from space. You know, it's like that is a reaction. But some people who in, in our field try to push people towards another way. Harness that energy. Build grassroots movements to convince your leadership. Run for election. You know, do all this stuff you need to do to, to really get rid of, you know, the, the atomic bomb. And I see that in a lot of people today, especially young people who are joining movements like the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. I can. That just won a Nobel Peace Prize. And I think this is really fitting very well for what Paul Driscoll's final approach. Uh, you know, really powerful stuff. This reminded me when I was reading your notes, I wanted to share a passage from Jonathan Schell, who is a philosopher who wrote really well on nuclear war and the dangers of it, and really inspired me to get into this field. Of his 1984 book, The Abolition, he writes what inspires people like Paul Driscoll and you know actual real-life people too. We are not only fearful of the thought of suffering a nuclear holocaust, but repelled by the thought of perpetrating one. After the Cuban Missile Crisis, Premier Khrushchev remarked that the smell of burning flesh was in the air. But, in truth, that smell is never far from our nostrils now. The world's nuclear arsenals threaten to annihilate everyone in response to a transgression or mistake by any one party. That is how the doctrine of deterrence is designed. In consenting to live under it, we bear responsibility not only for the lives of the people whom we would kill— but also for the lives of those whom they would kill, namely our families, our friends, and our fellow citizens. Through the balance of terror, we come to hold a dagger to the hearts of those nearest and dearest to us, as well as to threaten those far away. The parent threatens the child, the lover, the lover, the friend, the friend, the citizen, the citizen. Our acceptance of nuclear weapons is in that sense a default of parenthood, of love, of friendship, of citizenship, in which we all, like hijackers of an airplane, take one another hostage and threaten to kill one another. In acquiescence to the balance of terror, we become irresponsible parents, cold-hearted lovers, faithless friends, and apathetic citizens. And in making a conscious choice to lift the nuclear peril, we resolve to escape this pervasive corruption of our lives. We resolve to clear the air of burning flesh. I love that passage. I think it's it's very well written, and it really describes the feeling of why Paul Driscoll couldn't just stay stuck in escapism. He wanted to make that conscious choice, and the, his decision is, I'll go back to my own time period, and I'll make the future from that point on better by my own actions. I guess the question for you guys is, I mean, we're talking about you know some lofty ideas here, and you know maybe the feeling is for those who are in power, it's easy for them to make 
these kind of changes or choices. What do you guys think we as, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> just, just, you know, people, yeah, the, the common person. I mean, what are things that we can do to, to um, advance that and to, to maybe make the world better? Well, I mean, they used to be that uh, people were actively uh, involved in, in pressuring governments to make changes with the nuclear arsenal because there's people who are in leadership positions also feel like they are trapped in a position where, yeah, they love to get rid of nuclear bombs. Ronald Reagan famously was, uh, you know, wanted to get rid of nuclear weapons because he, he, he was terrified of them. He was as scared as Paul Driscoll was in Act 1, but he felt he the only way to deal with it was, you know, you could try to do your best and if you can find a way to get rid of them and worry not, and not worry about the other side also having them, then maybe we can do something about it. But until then, we're, we need weapons to deter them. So the, like the default of deterrence, people can't really seem to get out of it. But people also, you know, I, I would argue for that a lot of that, it's a failure of imagination. It's a failure of being able to, you know, start to want to move towards a, a, a world where we're not just hanging by luck every time we deal with this. I think that's something that if people start to see that again and maybe start to realize that, yeah, the Cold War is over, but the danger of nuclear weapons is still there, figuring out how to ha harness that, you know, it is, it's running for office. It's trying to convince people. It's trying to make the people aware that this is an important issue and it's not just something that is found in old Cold War movies that this weird podcast talks about. It's a, it's a reality that's there today. And talking to your leaders and convincing them about it is a good way to do it. And you see some progress every once in a while. And for those of us who are, you know, trying to convince uh, kids to be good people in the world, it's to talk to them about it, too, so that they don't just get scared and afraid of the dangers of these things. You talk about how you can, as citizens, influence your government, which is, I know, I still feel like in America that's still a thing. We're just not particularly very good at it. Mm-hmm. And it's about uh, attention, I think. I think when you uh, watch the Democratic debates that are happening right now in 2020, when you listen to this in uh, 30 years, uh, yeah. this is the time that we're in today. Uh, yeah, you don't hear a lot of questions about uh, nuclear weapons anymore. You know, it's, it's not on the forefront of the mind, so I think. There was one early on because Elizabeth Warren had put uh, out there a no-first-use bill, but not anything since then. They're like, oh, we, co we covered that question. It's not a problem there right. anymore. Right. Which is super weird. I think one of these characters gets a redemption and one of them doesn't, you mm -hmm. know? Because um, Driscoll ultimately kind of does come back to the the present and is going to go kind of back out into society and right. and uh, grapple with it, you know. It does seem like Henry is going to crawl his way to that gun. Yeah, yeah, and I think the episode's basically like, yeah, and he, you know, he's, he got what he deserved, basically, mm. right? Because he he was so stuck in the past at the expense of any you know human relationships. Well, Gabe, okay, how about connect it to you? You know, the city of the edge of forever. You know, the way that ends is is pretty sad. Um, you know, spoiler alert for people that haven't seen that episode of the TV show or listened to our episode of the podcast. Shatner just lets the the woman die. What do you think the kind of the lesson that came out of that? It seemed like Shatner and was that episode ever referenced again in the future? Was it just tend to be a one off thing? Well, how did that resolve versus how you thought maybe these episodes resolved of people trying to... Yeah, I mean, I think there it was a very, like, utilitarian calculus that we need to let this one person die to, mm -hmm. um, you know, save many others, that, that needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one type thing. Um, but I still think there's that causal aspect of that and uh, an intention about taking action that will you know, impact the future. So um, I think that I, I tie it together with um, intentionality, um, thought about, careful thought about what you do today and, and how that impacts mm -hmm. the future versus 
um, versus just making decisions in the moment, acting based on human passion. I mean, a lot of Star Trek was uh, was about moderating human passion with mm. with logic and the counterpoint there. And and I think the um, the message, at least I get from this, is you know we have this anger and and this uh, this hatred that that is sometimes within us. Um, that leads us to, you know, declare war and, and you know, hate our enemies and things like that. Um, I do think that the episode is is calling for uh, moving beyond that to to a more enlightened state. So I actually view it in a very similar vein, you know, of Star Trek. And I think it's a nice counterpoint to that first episode, which for me is a lot about just the fragility and, and what, you know, what can happen if we um, if we don't act intentionally. Hmm. Let's do our rating system here. Uh, I like to use a consistent scale of one to five so that it's consistent across all of our episodes. We can kind of compare which are the which are the good ones and which are the bad uh, apples that we had to talk about. Maybe like, you know, Atomic Train is pretty low on our, <laughs> on our list here. Um, but I also like to tailor the rating system because I get super critical about everything. So I uh, have I've crunched the numbers here. And let's do a scale of one to five pairs of glasses. You know, eyeglasses. Because one pair can easily be broken and you're a reader out of luck in the apocalypse. But if you got five pairs, hey, you can even afford to read books while riding around the rubble in your e-scooter. I'm going to give five glasses to Time Enough at Last. I think it's one of the perfect episodes of Twilight Zone. And, you know, originally I was going to give 2.5 to to this episode, but I think Elliot convinced me. Nice. Uh, I don't think that's what they were really trying to do, but I think overall I, I'm going to have a newfound appreciation for it. I'm bumping it up to three. I can even maybe go 3.5, but I don't think it's there <laughs> just yet. But I, So five for time enough at last, three pairs of glasses for uh, no time like the past. I'll do four for time enough at last. A very strong episode, but for me has some, there's some weird stuff in there. Um, you know, the, the wife character. It's yeah, just, yeah. Yeah. But, um, but anyway, and I also would go three for, um, no time like the past. I'm going to go based on what I think the purpose of the twilight zone is, which is not necessarily to be a, a great drama. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's, it's meant to be these idea pieces that get you talking and thinking. So on that scale, I'm going to give uh, a three to Time Enough at Last, mm-hmm. which is dramatically better done, but I think less interesting to talk about. And I'm going to give a, uh, a four and a half to No Time Like the Past. I love it. Different perspectives on it, and this is this is great. You need a good podcast episode, needs good things to talk about, uh, or else we're just going to talk about atomic trains for, for two <laughs> hours, and it's not very entertaining. So if people want to listen to more things similar or want to experience something like this particular episode of The Twilight Zone, uh, I've got three recommendations for people to check out. One is the Twilight Zone episode I mentioned earlier, The Shelter. That's a great one. Uh, if you listen to it, you can then have a podcast episode here to follow on. Uh, but I also recommend an episode called Walking Distance, which is, I think, the better version of this uh, No Time Like the Past. Hmm. It's a man who is a not a terrible person. He's just a, he's a business guy. He's quick and he's, he's in town near his own hometown uh, on a business trip, but he's getting his car worked on. Uh, and he goes, hey, I'm going to take a walk. And he takes a walk and he ends up going to his town where he was as a kid. And he starts to reflect all of a sudden, like, wow, this is weird that I'm here, but this is nice. And he starts to get that nostalgia. And then part of the story is about how, well, maybe you are too attached to nostalgia and it wasn't really the way you looked at it. And you're you're corrupting your memory of this. And it, all this whole thing is 
really strong in terms of Rod Sterling's past. Like he, his relationship with his father was difficult. His he spent time in war. He had friends die, and he wanted himself to go back to that time period. Mm. Um, but he he was concerned. Yeah, it's going to be comforting. It's going to be a nice escape, but it's not going to be the solution. I need to do something else moving forward. So I would recommend that episode called Walking Distance. It's pretty good. Um, I also recommend the TV show. It's a comedy called Last Man on Earth, starring Will Forte, where he there's a some sort of virus that knocks out pretty much everybody in the population, and he ends up being like Henry Bemis. But if you imagine Henry Bemis to be kind of like a, a schlump loser who is a little bit crazy, instead of collecting books, he collects like you know paint famous paintings. At one point, he flies around, he drives around on the ground with a B two nuclear bomber just because. Why not? If you if you're the only one left in the world, it's a great comedy and it's a it's a fun take on what it's like if you're one of the last few people. If you have time enough at last, what would you do if you were also kind of like a little bit of a weirdo? And finally, uh, similar to Twilight Zone episodes, I really like Black Mirror quite a lot. And one of my favorite episodes of Black Mirror, the kind of British version of it's not the British Twilight Zone, but it is similar in terms of it's an anthology series with sci-fi elements, but all mostly about technology. There's my favorite episode of that show is called San Junipero, and it is about people who they have plenty of time at last because when you die or you're an elderly person who's nearing death, you can download your brain and put it into a computer server and just live life in any time period you want for forever your body can be dead but your consciousness can survive and what what meaning can you drive from that and how can you potentially build connection with other people it's i've watched that episode a couple of times now every time i i ball like a baby at the very end of it so if you like these kinds of stories i think that episode in particular of black mirror would be really good gabe do you have anything you want to recommend to people well we talked about it a bunch here uh so everyone should go watch city uh, on the edge of forever and also listen to our podcast episode that touched upon that as well as i think one other star trek episode and um as long as we're on star trek another episode called patterns of force um Mm. which is a similar they don't go back in time but there's a similar message of um stopping the rise of fascism and nazis and things like that but in a little bit of a different context so if you like this idea of altering the course of a um a history on the um on the path toward fascism and uh, atrocity then yeah. Uh, finally, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very much enjoying uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Uh, he's doing a series on um, the Japanese uh, involvement during World War II, Supernova in the East. Um, that was uh, very good, uh, very good treatment, and and kind of talked about some of the stuff that we we touched upon on the the second episode here. I think he also did one on um nuclear weapons obviously yeah, that's the, a good one yeah um where he talks about the bombing of hiroshima um in in supernova in the east i don't think he's gotten up to the uh the the bombings um the the atomic bombings of hiroshima and nagasaki i'm sure he will get to them but uh just an interesting um very interesting listening yeah at one point i'll be like in is for some reason there's this uh in the rubble of, of the Hiroshima police uh, department, there was a, a, a note about a man, Paul Driscoll, some, some, some American who visited <laughs> the captain a few moments before the bomb went off. And no one knows what that meeting was about. And there was no records of the yeah, death of but Paul. But he had a really nice suit. Yeah. So that's really all we have. Um, Elliot, what would you uh, recommend people to check out? 
Okay, I would recommend, uh, sort of in the theme of the first episode, I would recommend the movie Arctic with uh, Mads Mikkelsen. Hmm. So he's, it's sort of, the plane goes down in the Arctic, uh, and he's the, the only survivor on the plane, and it, it kind of goes out from there, right? Um, so, you know, kind of a last man on Earth kind of thing. Um, but I thought it was, uh, I, I liked it because uh, it, it explores some of these themes that we've talked about in terms of what, there's a, what happens, not to give too much away, but there, if there's a conflict between saving yourself and you know saving others Mm. um and and you know what what do you do um and and kind of what makes life worth living right like if if you're gonna forsake forsake others number two i would say 12 monkeys which is uh kind of a classic time travel let's go back in time and try to save the future kind of thing Mm -hmm. um if you haven't seen it so brad pitt and brad uh, a young brad pitt and bruce willis um and some others uh early in brad pitt's career so it's pretty interesting to see just from that perspective Mm. um really interesting film uh kind of a a a good ending and i'll just leave it there um and then the last one is i would say uh pretty much anything by hg wells just as being such an inspiration i think for just kind of the very concept of the twilight zone you know it was kind of like the original twilight zone stuff and you're probably familiar with all of the general ideas of a lot of his stories and they've made them way made their way into things like the twilight zone and you know other sci-fi um but if you haven't actually read it or in a while um they're they're short and they're fun and and uh so get yourself an anthology and, and read some of those and i think the an appropriate one to start with would be the time machine that's a great choice elliot thanks so much for coming uh, back on the episode was this better than atomic train i, I would say much better yes Good. i enjoyed it very much thanks for having me back thanks great terrific gabe welcome back as always thank you Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or want to tell us what we got wrong, uh, either nuke-wise or when Gabe suggested that we should all be going around killing baby Hitler, uh, (laughs) there are a couple ways you can contact the show and let us know. Twitter, at Nuclear Podcast. We're on Facebook. Uh, We're also uh, on email, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. And our website, supercriticalpodcast.com. I recently put up my 200, 300 plus list of nuke movies and TV shows that I've collected, uh, some that we have done, uh, and also ones that we can potentially do in the future. So go on that website, check it out, because there's lots of content there, as well as links to the resources that I used uh, and we all used to prepare for today's episode. So if you want to read more, that's, that's all there. So until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Gabe. And Elliot. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.